Would you take your Bibles and open them with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let's pray together. Father, we desire to know You. Desire to know what You mean by what You say. And so we would ask that You would superintend our time. That You would cause our spiritual eyes to be illumined by the grace and mercy of your Spirit upon us, that we would know you more, that we would understand what it is you have for us, and that we would be changed by it. We pray these things in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the great joys of being a Christian is that of being given by God concrete evidence of the surety of our salvation. I know that in some circles that is a debated topic, but I can assure you in the biblical realm and in the true understanding of Scripture, it is not debated at all. We have been given by God concrete evidence of the surety of of our salvation. We have statements like that in John 3.16, that whoever believes upon Jesus Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is concrete proof that once you're truly a believer, you will never perish. We have other statements in the gospel, particularly in the gospel of John, that No one or no thing can snatch those who are God's children by faith from His hand. There is nothing, there is no one who by any means of themselves or otherwise can remove them from salvation. Why? Because there is no one or no thing that is greater than God Himself who is the author and finisher of salvation. And the statement that God has been proving this truth to us through the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no greater a declaration of security for salvation than that very statement. You have someone who will doubt salvation, take them to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And far too often, because of our sin and because of our weakness of mind as a consequence of sin, sadly and unfortunately, we allow doubt to creep in and undermine the validity of that very statement. So one of the great joys of being a Christian is that God would give us undeniable proof of those previous statements with complete and absolute validity. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is valid because those who are Christians are actually and vitally united with Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. That is a real, that is a vital, that is a... Uh, actual union with Jesus Christ. We are in, as we are enveloped in, Jesus Christ. We are completely protected in Christ. Jesus said in John 10, I know my sheep. I protect my sheep. Years ago, my family and I, when we lived in Florida, we had the privileged opportunity to endure several hurricanes. I say it that way because not everyone is granted those kind of privileges. They can be a scary event. You say, why? Well, because the wind blows for days hard enough to blow all things in their path down. It's like a massive tornado is really what it is. But there are some people who build concrete homes. And their homes, being in their homes in a hurricane is like 
that description of being in Christ. We are completely protected. In other words, it doesn't matter what happens on the outside. It doesn't matter how strong the wind blows. It doesn't matter how many objects are being thrown at it. Inside, it's safe. And so it is for us, being in Christ. Our salvation is completely safe. And we've been hearing that over and over again, proof after proof of the absolute validity of Paul's declaration in verse 1, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's Paul's whole point. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever let that win the day in your mind and go back to believing that you can somehow lose your salvation and therefore have to go about trying to attain your salvation by some kind of effort. Which, by implication, would mean that you could, in fact, lose your salvation. If it's up to you, then certainly you could lose it. But salvation is not up to you. Salvation is in Christ alone, and once you have believed, it can never be lost. And as we learned a few weeks ago, God has and is orchestrating everything in His sovereign will, according to the counsel of His infinite wisdom and will. God is orchestrating everything in your life as a Christian so that you might be changed into the likeness of Christ. Conformed, metamorphosized is the word. You might be conformed to the very image of His Son. One to whom you are eternally joined. And so, we learn that Paul says in verse 28, all things, all things good, all things that are not good, God is using to change us in practice and change us in attitude, change us in action to the likeness of Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is changing you into through the circumstances of life? Read the Gospels and get a picture of Jesus Christ. That's what God is changing you to by way of your thought processes, by way of your actions, by way of your attitudes, all of it. God is using all of those things to mold you and squeeze you and chisel you and shape you and and hone you into the very likeness of his son. Therefore, Paul is proving the absolute unchangeableness of that declaration. And he's proving it on the basis of God's character. We see God's character through the divine decrees that are made concerning each and every one of those who are his. That's where we find ourselves again this morning in Romans chapter 8. So I want to read for us again verse 28 through verse 34. This is the section that we have been honing in on. The Apostle Paul says, as we walk through these proofs, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he, that is God, not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
want to stop right there. Because all of the work for our ultimate good, which is to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, is because God has decreed it to happen. Did you hear what I said? All the things working for our ultimate good, which is to transform us into the likeness of His Son, all of those things which do that, do that because God has decreed it to happen. And we notice, beginning in verse 29, we read of five decrees that God has made in order to accomplish His plan of not simply saving you, but also of making you into the likeness of Jesus Christ forever. So we have to understand these truths. This is a very crucial section of Romans chapter 8. We have to understand these truths because each one of these truths anchor our souls with eternal security. If you're still wavering after even the proofs we've already seen, hopefully you will not be wavering anymore after these. Each one is an action of God. Remember we said that last time. Each one of these is God's action. God is doing it. It is not action based upon what someone else is doing and therefore God is reacting to those things. No, these are decrees. These are declarations. These are actions of God by which He is accomplishing exactly what He says He will do. And these are actions of God that were decreed in eternity past, before God ever created anything. In theological terms, this is called in Latin the order salutis. In other words, how God came about carrying out the very plan of redemption that you and I revel in in Jesus Christ. We might even ask it in a simple question. How did God save me? God made decrees in eternity past. And he carried those decrees out in time so that what he had decreed was accomplished in its completeness. Now I want us to just think about that for a moment. God has decreed. The sovereign God who has created all things and out of which everything that ever has been made has been made. God, the one who is more powerful than anything that He ever has made. God, who is the one who can do whatever His will desires to do, according to the very nature of His character, has decreed, and there is no one and there is no thing greater than God, and therefore there is no one and there is no thing to thwart God's decree. And so not even you. Not even me, not even us as Christians can thwart God's plan that He has decreed concerning us. Now that's a profound thought, an even more profound reality. And it ought to be a profound motivator for us as Christians to our Christian living. Because if we will simply allow it to be embraced in its fullest sense, it will motivate how you live. All things work together for good because, first of all, God decreed to foreknow you. We see that in verse 29. For whom He foreknew. That is simply to say, as we learned a few weeks ago, That God decreed before He ever created anything. God set forth in the decrees of His own wisdom that He would love you in a specific way. That He would love you in a way that would be in a way that is different than He loves all of those who He is not saving. That He would not decree to save. 
God loved you in a specific way, that you would be, in fact, his own child. God decreed that before God ever created anything. And we learned as we studied that phrase that it was that God foreordained your salvation. God foreordained it before He ever created you. And therefore, because He foreordained your salvation, therefore He, secondly, as we learned last time, He predestined it to happen. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that Christ, He, that's the He there in that last phrase, so that He, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. You remember from our study of last time that we learned that predestination is to predetermine destiny. Predetermine destiny. In other words, because God foreknew you or because God preordained your salvation, therefore, in light of that, the second reality and decree is that God predetermined that goal. Because God foreloved you, preordained your salvation, then God predetermined that goal make it actually happen. That is simply to say, as the word says in the original language, God set salvation as the horizon, the horizon of your destiny, the goal of your destiny. So in time, then, God works out that ordained goal. You have redemption accomplished by Christ, and then in time God works it out. God applies redemption. And here's the question, how does he do that? How does he do that? We are told here that he does it through the overarching decree. You say, what is that? What is the overarching decree? The text says, for whom he foreknew... Those he also predestined, and then jump down to verse 30, and these whom he predestined, these he also called. And there you go from a past tense reality in eternity past to a decree that was made in eternity past but taking place in time. Those he called. Now, I said to us last Lord's Day that foreknowledge has been confused by many in evangelicalism throughout the years. And we talked about that last time. And if you weren't here for that, get to go online, look at the video, or, or just go online and listen to that, that sermon on that reality. But the second term that has been inordinately confused in this reality is the term calling. So let's look at this and work to understand it in our mind. When we think of calling, and when you think about calling in a biblical context and from the scriptures, when you read that term, there are two kinds or two aspects of calling in the New Testament. One is a general call. In other words, the gospel, the gospel goes out in a general way. It's a general call the call to all to hear the gospel. When the gospel is preached, that is a general call of the gospel to all, to believe upon Jesus Christ. Everybody generally goes out. It's it's a, a, a universal call in that sense. And there is also then, secondly, the effectual call of the gospel. There is the general call of the gospel, all believe. But there is the effectual call of the gospel, and that is which is the call that is embraced by those whom God has foreknown and predestined. You can think of the calling like this. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this, and I read this the other day. I think it was a good illustration. You can think of a husband and wife walking down the street, out for a walk one day, And while they're walking, they hear somebody call out. Somebody says something. But they can't really distinguish exactly what's being said. 
And the wife assumes that the person that is calling to them is calling to her personally. And she turns around and goes in the direction of the call. But the husband assumes that that person is not talking to them. And so he just keeps on going the same way. To one, the call is general. To the other, the call is effectual. The man ignores the call. In his mind, it's not for him. He heard it. He heard it just like the wife heard it. It it was to everybody. The call went out in a general fashion. He heard it, but he rejected it. The wife, she believed it. She believed that someone was trying to get her attention, and so she heeded the call. It was effectual to her. And I think that illustrates the difference with the word call in the Scriptures and how it is used and how it's really being used here in verse 30. Because while the call to the husband was ineffectual, to the woman it was effectual, even though they both heard the general call. That's the point that Paul's making here in verse 30. To those whom God has foreknown is the same as those whom God has predestined their destiny of salvation. And therefore, he has called them effectually. In other words, God foreordained it and God predetermined it, and therefore God now is making that reality happen. Let's just talk about that for a moment so that we're not confused at the calling of God. Because, as I said, the general call of the gospel, there is that when when. When someone preaches or teaches or shares the gospel, that's the general call of the gospel. It's the invitation of the gospel. And let me just say this and not confuse any of us so that we're clear. The invitation of the gospel, the general call of the gospel, this may shock you, but the general call saves nobody. It doesn't save anybody. It's the general call of the gospel. It's the general invitation. In other words, it's an invitation to all people to repent of their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith so that they might be saved. In fact, we can hear this in the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Jesus cries out to those who are there at the time, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's a general call. It went out to all those who were there. Certainly not all heeded the call. Or John seven thirty seven. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's a general call. You had all kinds of people in those times, especially in John chapter 7, which comes right after John chapter 6, when thousands of people Jesus had just fed, and they already turned from him, and Jesus is left with the 12. And in John 7, Jesus is now starting to share I am statements. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread. I am the, I am the, the drink. I, I, all these statements. And you had both Jews and you had proselyte Jews or Gentiles who had converted over to Judaism in the crowd as Jesus is speaking in John 7. And Jesus is preaching the call. He's giving an invitation. And it's universal. It's general. It's to all those people. It's in the ears of everyone. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Come to me if you're thirsty, and I'll give you drink. It's no different than today when we preach the gospel. When I stand up here or someone else stands up here in this pulpit and preaches and proclaims Jesus Christ, when you in your workplace or in your family or with your friends or in some acquaintance, you proclaim the gospel, you give the gospel to them, to your friends, family, and otherwise, it's a general invitation. The hope is that they would embrace it, but it's a general invitation. 
That's our job. That's our job as Christians. That's the only job we get to have. We are broadcasters. I have a, a machine in my house that I push around my yard every spring with kinds of things in it so it will feed my yard. And at the bottom there is a little circle with all kinds of little sections on it. And that thing spins at a rapid pace when I push it. It's called a broadcaster. It throws out what I put in it. I, it doesn't know where what it's throwing out is going to land. It's just indiscriminate. It's shending it out to all the grass on my lawn and hopes that it would receive it. And some of the seed that goes out sinks into the ground and grows. And some of it gets burned up by the sun. And some of it the birds come and take away. And some of it lands on the concrete driveway and never goes anywhere. But the broadcaster just throws it. That's what we do. We're broadcasters. Now, the difficulty with the general invitation, we are broadcasters, which is the only part we're involved in as Christians. The difficulty is that, as we have already learned, that if God doesn't do something with the dead sinner, if God doesn't till the soil of the heart of that dead sinner, They don't do something with those who are in the flesh. They will stay in the flesh. If God doesn't do something with them, and maybe we could say it this way, if they are left to themselves, if they are left in the very condition with which they have entered into the world in spiritual darkness, then no way, no how, ever in a hundred years will they ever come to believe in Jesus Christ. They will never respond positively to the invitation. We've even seen this in our own day. People who hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. They even understand the words being said to them to a certain point. But God remains undesirable to them and they reject him still. You say, why? Because they are not able to believe. They're dead. They're like we read in chapter 8. Their mind is set on the flesh, and therefore it's the mind set on death. Their mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. In fact, it is not even able to do so. They cannot in any way please God. You remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14 about a man who prepared a banquet and he invited a group of guests. And it was all prepared. When it was all ready, he sent out the servants into the into the byways with the invitations. Go pass out the invitations. Go give the invitations. Go broadcast the reality that this party is ready. But many who were within the earshot of that general call began to make excuses why they couldn't come. One man said, I just bought a field and I have to go and sell it. Too busy. I got a business transaction to make. I can't make it. Another one said, I bought five oxen and I want to give them a test run on my field. I got a feel. I just got this new car, and I got to go give it a test drive. I don't have time to come to know Jesus. Another one said, "I just got married. I can't come. I'm on my honeymoon. What are you talking about? Go to church? No way." Jesus wasn't just making all that up. That's the way people were. That was the way people at that time were responding to the gospel. They weren't coming. They refused the call, assuming it wasn't good for them. And some people over time have wrongly thought that if we can just get the information right, if the, if the broadcaster can just tweak the gears a little bit, tweak the message a little bit, change some things up a little bit, then maybe, just maybe, people are going to come. I mean, after all, people do foolish things. 
things they regret. And, and so if I just give them enough clear, if, I, if I'm just clear enough, if I tweak it enough, if I don't make it offensive at all, then they'll come out of the dark. They'll want to come. If I just make Jesus and the gospel pretty enough, then they'll accept it. John tells us in chapter 3, verse 19 of his own gospel, light has come into the world, but men, what? Love darkness. They love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. I read it this morning. I don't know if you caught this in John chapter 10, but it's the very principle we're talking about right here. Jesus says to those very religious people of the day to whom he was talking, particularly the Pharisees who were around there, Jews, tell us who you are. Don't keep us in suspense. Tell us if you're the Christ. Tell us plainly. I mean, be clear with us. Make your message clear. I mean, the reason we're not accepting is because it's been a little confusing to us. You haven't convinced us with all the right evidence that we should follow you. Tell us plainly. And Jesus says to them, I told you. I told you as plainly as it's going to get. I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do speak loud enough. You want evidence, you want all that proof, you want a clarity of message, the works that I do, they're clear enough that I do them in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But I'll tell you why you don't believe, Jesus says. You want to know why you don't believe the gospel that I've given? It's not because it's not clear. You don't believe, why? Because you're not of my sheep. That's why you don't believe. Let me just put it in the words of Matthew chapter 7. You don't believe because I never knew you. If you, if I foreknew you and predestinated you, when you're called, you'll come. But you're not coming because you're not mine. You see, people don't believe because of who they are. It's not God's fault that they don't believe. They're God-haters by nature. Unless God does something in them, they'll never believe because they love the darkness. The only people who believe the gospel are sheep. Sheep. My sheep hear my voice, he says. Do you notice he doesn't say, when they hear my voice, they become sheep? He didn't say that. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. That's effectual call. So the general call goes out and the specific call of God is what saves. Why? Because it's internal. It's specific. It's effectual. The specific call of the gospel in those whom God has foreknown, in those whom God has foreordained, provides the willingness in you to respond to the gospel. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit works through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, through the broadcasting of the general call of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit works that to call to faith those whom God has foreknown and predestined to be conformed to His Son. Apart from that, no one is saved. You're sitting here this morning. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, you're sitting here this morning not because you got clever and someone got clever and you finally figured it out and God got all the things in line and, and, and that person designed it in such a way that you understood the language and it started to make sense to you and so you finally embraced Christ. That's not why you're sitting here this morning. You're sitting here this morning because in eternity past, God foreknew you, He predestined you, and He called you. So you can think of it this way. The effectual call of God is God bringing to spiritual life those who without that call would remain spiritually dead and God-haters forever.
apart from that, no one is saved because except by the actions of God, because of God's sovereign grace, even you, even me, the chief of sinners, is turned to God. This is what we see happening in the New Testament when the terms calling are used in reference to salvation. This is what's happening. When you read in the New Testament the term calling and it has reference to salvation, this is what it's used. This is what it's, the idea is. It's used with this effectual or specific idea, this movement of God upon the hearts of men. I'll just give you a couple examples. Go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Notice what he says. Right? Paul begins to talk about himself in the, at the beginning, just introducing himself, bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, right? That's an effectual call. Paul certainly didn't want to be an apostle. Paul was a God-hater, a church killer, uh, a Christ-following killer. And God called him. That's effectual. But that's not the one I want to point out. That's just to show you that it's there too. I want to show you verses 6 and 7. Right, he says, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, <clears throat> called saints. You are the called of Jesus Christ. You are called saints. That's effectual. You weren't that before. You're that now, not because of your own cleverness, but because God moved upon your heart and drug you against your own will, changed your heart, and brought you into his family. You didn't choose God. He chose you. Go over to Romans chapter 11. Paul talking about those of Israel who are not part of this group by which God foreknew and predestined and called. Talking about Israel itself. We'll get into that here in another few weeks. And he says in verse 28, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. In other words, when it comes to the gospel, yeah, they're enemies in this sense. They, they've rejected the gospel, and because of that, in light of that, in God's redemptive plan, God, through the rejection of the Jews, has sent us out to the Gentiles, which you are, and because they've rejected it, the gospel graciously in God's redemptive plan in history has come to you. So in that sense, it looks as if they're enemies from the standpoint of the gospel. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. In other words, God promised some things to Israel. He's going to save those whom he's chosen because, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable. Irrevocable. God's not going to change that. That's, it's effectual. That's the idea. The promises of God, the calling of God, are always effectual. And God's moving. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read a few more. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. That is an effectual call. God has draw you, drew you to Himself. It was accomplished. It's an accomplished reality by God. God called you. Ephesians 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, he says then, I urge you to live, in, uh, live your life worthy of the calling you have received. We could say the calling you were made able to receive because unless that happened, you wouldn't have wanted it. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8 and 9, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. 
but join with me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Once again, it's, it has a specificity to it. It has an effectual nature to it. In all of those passages, the call of God is effectual to both save and equip all those to whom it is written, which are those whom he foreknew and whom he predestined. So we know from scriptures that the effectual call of God unites us with Christ, unites us with Jesus Christ, brings us into that divine process of conforming us into the likeness of Christ so that we might walk according to that calling. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, so does that mean that the general call of the gospel is not important? I mean, if people are only saved by the effectual call of the gospel, doesn't that seem to make the general call of the gospel not really all that important? And this is, the, this is the mindset of some who say, then why do we send out missionaries if God saves those whom he has chosen? Then why do we send out missionaries if, in fact, God's going to save all those whom he's chosen? Doesn't that make the general call just worthless if it's the effectual call? No. I'll tell you why. Because it's only through the general call that people, that God brings about the effectual call. In other words, without the general call, you don't have an effectual call. Without the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The general call must go out or the effectual call never goes out. If God calls effectually through the general call, then if someone is to be saved, if those whom he foreknew and predestined to be saved are going to be saved, then the effectual call must happen. Therefore, the general call must go out. That's why we have to understand that the call of the gospel in a general sense does not save anybody. It doesn't make anyone alive. God alone is the author of the new birth. The way that God does that is through the sowing of the seed of his word. That's what he's given to us. So we spread the word in a general way. God specifically and effectually uses it upon those whom he has foreknown and predestined. And so Paul says in verses 29 and 30, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. And then fourthly, whom he called, these he also justified. Justified. So the next overarching reality in this chain of the decrees of God is that of justification. We know what justification is. If you don't, go back to chapter 5 and pull out all those archived sermons. We know that it's the declaration of God of spiritual innocence before Him. It's a declaration that God makes on behalf of those whom He has foreknown, those whom He has predestined, those whom He has called as spiritual innocence before Him on the basis of, Get this, on the basis of the satisfactory substitutionary sacrifice of His Son on behalf of those whom He saves. We are justified by faith. Once again, we understand that justification is the act of God. It's an act of God's grace for those whom God has foreknown and for those whom God has predestined, and for those whom God has effectually called to faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's not get tripped up with the words in this text, because they all have this past tense time reference. 
for whom he foreknew, that's past tense, for whom he predestined, that's past tense, for those whom he called, past tense, justified, past tense, and even glorified, past tense. Don't let that trip you up. Even with foreknowledge and predestination, those prefixes are time words, words that describe time for us who live in time. God does not live in time. God created time. He doesn't live in time. He is outside of time. And what He knows and what He determines, He knows and determines from all eternity outside of time. But what He has decreed outside of time, He works out in time. And calling is that point in which his eternal decree of foreknowing you and his eternal decree of predetermining your goal of salvation finds its actual manifestation in time. This is the switch, if you will, the time element. Your faith, which is God's gift to you, your faith is not yours prior to salvation. It's God's gift to you, and therefore you exercise it, and your faith that God gave you proves your justification. You wouldn't have faith in Jesus Christ if you were not justified. We are created in time, so God's specific calling is the point at which we are given faith to believe. And in that moment in time, we are actually justified before God. That application of redemption is brought to us. In other words, it is the calling of God that brings about spiritual life in us. It is the calling of God. John chapter 6 says, no one comes to the Father unless he draws him. That's the description of calling. God effectually drawing you. In fact, the picture there is you drawing you against your will. You're like, "Ah," as you go. And he does that on the basis, by the power of the Spirit, I should say. He does that by the power of the Spirit on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that when you exercise faith, that gift of God, through the calling of God, it's at the same time that you are justified before God, declared innocent. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. Because we are declared innocent, because we are justified, our ultimate spiritual destiny is gloriously guaranteed. That's why Paul could say, and these he also glorified. All past tense terms, because in the mind of God, it's a done deal. Completely accomplished. Finished. And God's carrying it out in time. All of this is so secure in the mind and heart of God that it is as if it has already been done in time. Even though Our glorification in its ultimate sense is yet to come. God has so decreed the process of our salvation by means of his decrees of foreknowledge, predestination, and calling, and justification, and glorification so that we can be completely assured, absolutely 100% completely assured of our salvation because God never goes back on anything that he has decreed. That's why Paul can say in verses 31 to 34, these words, I think they're, they're pretty much self-explanatory when you understand that. What shall we say to these things? I mean, if foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification are so secure because they're the very reality of the nature of God being carried out by the decrees before time began, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. So it's based upon the sacrifice of Christ. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, how could God sacrifice his son to you to save you and therefore one day lose you? Impossible. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified? Who's going to bring an absolute charge against them that will be that will stick? God's the one who justifies. The one who decreed it is the one who declared it. Who's the one who condemns then? And see, all the answers to these questions is uh, there's nobody greater than God. Then how in the world could you ever be outside of that? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Yeah, and the one who is raised. The one who's at the right hand of God. The one who's there interceding for us. Could there ever be anything more secure? What imagery? All right, who's in the room to bring charge? Bring it up. Come on. The only answer all the accusers can come away with is God's voice in their ears like Job. Who darkens the counsel of my authority? Who dares come before me? I'm the one who declared it. And you're going to tell me I can't do that? Here's Paul's point. If God is the one who saves us, then who can remove us from it? That's Paul's point. God's the one who saves you, and who can remove you from that? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is nailing the coffin lid shut on your doubt. One more proof to come. One more proof to come. We already know what it is, and yet we got to hear it next time. And I think it's appropriate that we do it next time because we're going to be at the Lord's table next Sunday. What an appropriate finish to that reality. Let's pray together. Father, I... I pray that these words that were spoken this morning would sink deep in the hearts of your people. That they would understand the decrees as you have set them forth. We understand there's nuances in between all of those words like reconciliation and sacrifice and the atonement and all of the things, you know that you have laid forth according to the, the redemption of your great purposes for us. And now we have a big picture. We have that big picture view of how you decreed it to happen. And we know that these are true because they're according to your very character, according to your nature. And you can never go back on who you are. So help us to just rest there. As Hebrews 4 says, let us enter that rest, knowing that Jesus Christ has died, risen, sits at the right hand of you and intercedes for us. Oh, what a great day. Thank you for that. Motivate us now in light of that to live for you in every way that you might receive all the glory, that we might be changed into the image of your Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.